So I'm constantly going, no, no, no stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Maybe I'm not visionary enough. Damn it, Jerry. That's some fine, advanced intelligence work there, Lou. That's nation-state-level <laughs> right there. Oh, my God. All right, you ready to go? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Today is Tuesday, October 7th, 2014, and this is episode 87 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. I hope you're doing well, sir. Fantastic, and likewise, welcome back to Civilization. It's true. I fled south for some sun and beach and jellyfish and stingrays, according to the sign. Great. Welcome back. None attacked me. This could also be because I flee from the sun and, you know, sizzle rapidly, so I wasn't in it too much. Got it. It's hard to work on the laptop when you're out in the sun, right? That's true. All right, so uh, the first topic we had tonight was just to uh, recap our time at DerbyCon, as we promised last week. So and a fine time it was. It, it was a great time. I would say, uh, bar none, and I think we mentioned it last time, my favorite talk was the, the one on incident response put on by the GE team. And, you know, by the way, I've got a, there's way more talks that you can ever possibly attend, so I still am in the process of going through and watching the videos. And uh, if you're interested, I definitely encourage the listeners here to go watch some of them. And, and by the way, there was uh, the, the whole bad USB thing that's going around was, you know, dropped at DerbyCon. So. And to be fair, not every talk is a hit, right? So just to warn the listeners, some of them that you watch are not necessarily the most exciting, enlightening. There's some we don't agree with. So, but there's a lot of good ones. And yeah, the one from GE was really rocking. Uh, to be completely transparent, the presenters were maybe not the most dynamic. Uh, clearly they had not presented often in front of a crowd, which is understandable, but the information they presented was incredibly solid and really interesting. Yeah, all about the content on that one, for sure. And, and by the way, there, I think the converse was also true. There were a number of speakers who were really engaging and very, very charismatic, but really didn't have a great a great story to tell. This is true. I myself participated in slideshow roulette where you get a random unprepped unseen PowerPoint slide deck and you need to make it interesting and uh, I didn't even make it past the first round. So clearly as dynamic and engaging as I am as I am, I failed. Well, in your in your defense, you went first, and you did not pick up. You didn't have the opportunity to pick up on the vibe uh, that the way to win is through sexual innuendo. That's true. But That's true. yeah, whatever. You, you'll know it for next time. That's right. So, uh, so then we had a uh, we had a, a listener meetup, which was which was pretty cool. We had uh, I think about half of our listeners there. At least, at least. Well, are we counting? Uh, immediate family. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously my parents weren't there, so. Right. Uh, and the coma patients were not there. That's true, too. Uh, inmates, not there. No, no inmates. So, of those who listen voluntarily who are not incarcerated and are not direct family, uh, half our listener base. Yeah, I did hear about what they're doing with our podcast at Gitmo, and that was really unfortunate to hear. I... I like to think we're contributing to national security. Uh, whatever. Whatever. You know. So anyhow, we uh, it, it was really awesome to meet it was. Uh, so many so many good good people. Uh, thank you to all of you who were there. Great meeting you. Hopefully we get to meet again soon. Absolutely. I uh, learned to pick my first lock at DerbyCon. That was exciting. They have uh, a lock pick village. Yes. That... Jerry, on the other hand, is far more experienced. <laughs> I... Uh... I love picking locks. That was uh, uh, that 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 is probably one of my favorite parts of DerbyCon. Actually, sitting down and uh, just being in a room full of locks that you are intended to pick. Normal, normally, you have to worry about that sort of thing. <laughs> and it wasn't me hand delivering you tasty Starbucks treats then. Well, that was also good. Yeah. So yes, 
Thank you, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No problem. But uh, what else? What else did we see? I saw less talks than I wanted to see, unfortunately. Uh, the parties were pretty cool. Uh, the vibe is cool. I would say I probably had more enjoyment and got more value out of the hallway conversations than even some of the talks, which is an odd thing to say. But LobbyCon and HallwayCon was excellent and met a lot of really cool people. And, you know, one thing I will say that the podcast has done, for me at least, is really open the door to a lot more meeting and speaking with people that I probably would not have had the opportunity otherwise. So that is something that, you know, this podcast has been great for, and and I thank you for that. So it's – that's cool. I really dig that. Um and we got a chance to do a three-way podcast. Yeah, which we still don't have the audio for. Oh, well. <laughs> Whatever. Details. Yeah, we got to we got to get on that. Uh, let's see. What other good talks did you see that you want to mention? Um you know, none come to mind right now. The GE one just was so so far and away the most interesting to me. Uh, you know, again, like you, I I didn't go to a ton, and I'm still going through the the videos right now. What about the AD defense one? What do you think about that? Um, well, you know, that is actually a very good talk. I had actually seen that talk given at. Um, I, I mean, I didn't go there. I watched the video of uh, that. That person whose name escapes me right now presented it at, I believe it was B-Sides Augusta. Ah. And uh, so it was, it was basically the same thing, which it, it, by the way, is a really very good, very good talk, but just wasn't new to me when I when I sat there and watched it. So didn't know it at the time when I went in there that I had already seen it. So um, again, it's, it's definitely worth watching. If you have an AD shop, I highly recommend it. Good, good. And, and and just so you know, the one of the the key themes there was, uh, if you have again, if you are an Active Directory shop, you, you number one, you want to minimize the number of domain admins for obvious reasons. But two is, you really want to make sure you have a level of trust uh, with the people who who you're granting that authority to. So he talks a lot about that. So anyhow, good good stuff. I'll put links to, or I'll put a link to the uh, the, the stream of YouTube videos from uh, uh, DerbyCon, and you can watch away. I mean, it'll take you days to get through them all. So, having said that, uh, by the way, I'm definitely intending to go back, and I will also say it has inspired me to start putting together some talks, and we we talked about that, and we'll probably be doing some jointly. It's true, which means you'll do all the work, and I'll just add some color commentary and take half the credit. That sounds about right. Just like the podcast. Just like the podcast. (laughs) Hey, if the formula works, why? That's right. right. That's right. So, uh, So, yeah, moving on. Our first story tonight is from Tripwire, and uh, the title is... AT&T discovers second insider breach this year. And the story here is that uh, 1,600 customers were recently notified by AT&T that an employee improperly accessed details, uh, customer details, including names, social security numbers, driver's license numbers. I mean, you know, nothing of consequence, CPNI information. And apparently they have also discovered that some of it has been misused although they're not really saying what that means. Uh, having said that, though, they actually had earlier in the year another episode where three employees had access records of other customers, and the intention there was to impersonate those customers to obtain unlock codes for phones. So it's not clear to me if they were trying to unlock phones that were stolen or uh, there's, there's some missing details I don't have. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing that strikes me, and we've talked a little bit about this, is that there's a, I think there's not enough focus on the problem of business logic. And, uh, and I've seen this on, on a number of occasions in previous lives and previous employers 
where, especially in like support type organizations, where anybody can get to any customer information. And the reality is you, especially if you're, if you're tracking things that are sensitive, like social security numbers, driver's licenses, or, you know, any number of other potential things that could, could be damaging, you really want to implement some kind of a need to know restrictions. So, you know, you can only get to that customer information if you, you happen to be working on a case for that customer and have some kind of a, you know, separation of duties type of uh, construct where, you know, you can't assign yourself a ticket or that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously it's not airtight, but it's probably a lot better than having someone, you know, route through 1600 customer records. Yeah, it's interesting. The tough part is we don't know really any details about how this insider did anything, how they were detected, what they did, but we can make some suppositions, right? And I agree with you. There's a lot of times that we don't monitor what our insiders are doing. And sometimes that's malicious and intentional. And sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes it's a third, you know, third party that has snuck some sort of malicious code onto that desktop or laptop or whatever it may be of that insider. And I think either way, monitoring that behavior is important, especially if it's key customer data. Uh, you know, I know this stuff gets spread around a lot, but at least take a data-centric view of watching who's accessing and how and why they're accessing that data and doesn't match up with normal behavior. Yeah, and and if, you, if you're adept at doing that, you're going to catch either a malicious employee or the case where the, the person's workstation's been compromised and, you know, is being, being used by some external actor. So, I think that's, uh, I think that's good advice. Uh, I do think though that some of these systems aren't designed from the, you know, maybe not from the ground up, right? But they're not really designed to compartmentalize and, and isolate information in a, in a way that makes sense in the current world. And that's, I, uh, you know, I think that that's probably something that needs to be done. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, and that may be something that, going forward, people would design in that that concept a little better, hopefully. But especially with some of these big, old, old companies, uh, they probably don't have any concept of that when, or didn't when they put these things together initially. So that's a very good point. You say an AT and T is old? Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm sure their IT, especially for big customer records, is probably fairly, uh, oh yeah, fairly mature. Oh, you, oh yeah, and it's probably incredibly costly and difficult then for the, for them to change things on these huge old monolithic databases. But nonetheless, thus here we are. Thus is the hell of IT. You know, one other thing I found interesting was that the reason this was disclosed was because of Vermont. Oddly enough, Vermont yeah. has has laws uh, exactly. for data breach notification so they had to send a letter to the Vermont Attorney General. Yeah, and that is becoming more uh, more and more interesting of a landscape. You know, each each state, I think there's last count there was 42, I believe, 42 states that have data breach different levels of data breach notification requirements. And uh it's kind of a it's kind of a landmine, you know, landmine field, right? So you 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 need some kind of counsel to help you get through that. And uh, it's becoming more perilous, I think. Business plan idea, data breach, notification, outsourcing. That's a great idea. We'll, we'll take the fall for you. <laughs> well, we track the ever-changing laws of the 51 states and territories in the United States and know exactly what must be done for every breach notification. And you can manage it all through our handy portal. Just upload your data. Right. All of it. <laughs> and, and we'll figure it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, that's got to be a massive pain to keep up with all of that from each of the individual states. Yeah. And I... I I'm, I'll tell you, I'm pretty sure there are a number of, of innovative law firms out there who are offering that kind of service, you know, not, obviously not like a software as a service type of thing, but, uh, I, I think, uh, this is becoming a legal, uh, you know, something that, that the legal profession is starting to really pay attention to. 
Fair enough. So um, the next story we have is just all kinds of epic wonder and fail and everything else in between. So Yahoo, and th- by the way, this story is like developing as we're talking. So Yahoo yesterday was accused by a uh, uh, this person named Jonathan Hall, who is apparently the senior engineer and president of a security company. Uh, and I first read this, uh, I think, when I was... Uh, the, the company's name, by the way, is Future South Technologies. I was uh, reading this on... He posted it on Reddit, I think was his initial point of disclosure. He apparently was pretty frustrated. His allegation is that a couple of Yahoo servers were subscribed to a botnet via a uh, an attack through Shellshock. And uh he writes quite a lot of uh, a lot of hoopla about his trials and tribulations with contacting Yahoo and them not taking him seriously and finally he had to email and tweet Marissa Mayer who is the CEO of Yahoo before anything actually happened. And so that is interesting, but not where it ends. The next, uh, the next part of the story is that the CISO of Yahoo, Alex Stamos, responds on Hacker News and has subsequently given a number of interviews and flatly refuses the, the charge that this was the result of shell shock. And in fact, it was the result of a script that had processed or parsed some data that uh, the attackers had sent, which apparently just so happened to to trigger in the same way that Shellshock would have triggered. And so uh, so Mr. Hall, in turn, replies that that's essentially a crock of shit. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, basically there's that's kind of like winning the lottery. What what is the likelihood that a uh, somebody could get that lucky to trigger something in a custom written script? And uh, you know, and, and just kind of tit for tat, back and forth. Uh, the 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 net of it is, you know, I really think both sides are kind of being idiots about this. To be to be blunt, I I really think having read what. Uh, Mr. Hall has written that he, let me see, say this very diplomatically, he may not understand everything about enterprise security and enterprise IT architecture to the level that he believes he does. So he, he goes on quite a few rants and tangents about the servers have, have 10. RFC 1918 addresses, which is not uncommon in the context of a very large ISP where your actual servers are sitting behind, you know, some kind of a reverse proxy load balancer type setup. Uh, so, so that, you know, that was one thing. Uh, another was in a very recent report, Alex Stamos said uh, that, you know, he and his team had looked through their stack for evidence of this breach and, and, uh, Mr. Hall really uh, kind of went off on that and you know, said that this was not a buffer overflow, had nothing to do with the stack, and you know offered pointed him to other places to look for uh, for malware, and, and unfortunately totally missed the point that stack in that context is not talking about CPU registers and and things like that. It's talking about the the layers of software that you are running on your your platform it's 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 kind of a enterprise it generic term that is used anyway um i got to say here's my thought on this i think yahoo if it had been shellshock would have been way better off just saying it was shellshock because everybody in their dog right now knows about Shellshock and on and on and on, right? And, and I think if they would have said that, nobody would have batted an eye. And, you know, to, for, for whatever it's worth, 
that's just my my view. Uh, and instead, they they came out with this what is being described commonly as kind of a cockamamie story about a script. But I think it's possible, however horrifying, that this is actually true. Sure, why not? So, so if you if you have a, it's not an, it's not difficult to think, right? The method by which shell shock is exploited is really simple. I mean, you're basically like passing it some crap, and then a shell command, like you know. W get something and then run that something, right? It's not necessarily impossible to think that somebody somebody has a script for whatever reason, you know, parses out crap at you know at the beginning and end, and uh, let's say fetches fetches web pages that are that are uh, refers or, or or what have you, and to 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 do some kind of uh, you know metrics on on uh, referring pages or whatever and an attacker and one of the we know one of the ways this was being attacked people were changing their user agent strings and their refer strings and whatnot in their web browsers and that was you know a, a relatively easy way to trigger the exploit and i just have to wonder if they wrote maybe the most god-awful script that actually did do this but in a very unintended way that could conceivably use, you know, the, uh, the, the sh- what looked like a shell shock type uh, thing. Now, totally, totally hypothetical and 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 uh, speculatory on my part. But I, I just want to point out that it's not out of the realm of possibility that Yahoo is actually telling the truth, right? Yeah, it is kind of a crazy story on the surface, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm not sure that, uh, that this, this Mr. Hall actually has all of his ducks in a row either. I could tell you're not a big fan of Mr. Hall. I, I don't, I don't know him from, from anything. It's just, it, 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 um, but based on the way he's been representing himself, you, uh, you, uh, yes. feel his credibility may be suspect. Yes. I think he could have approached this in a much more sane manner that would have actually made him look um, much better than he does right now. Fair enough. I think the Yahoo version of the story is entirely plausible. Absolutely. Right? So, so they have their version is uh, it was in essence shell shock, but that they had mutated their exploit, quote, likely with the goal of bypassing ITS. Uh, IDP and or WAF filters, end quote, and that this mutation happened to fit exactly a command injection bug in a monitoring script that they're running. Well, if you look at the way Shellshock works, as you were just talking about, sure, that fits very nicely into the concept of not a buffer overflow per se, but a command overflow where your script is only ex- expecting certain amount of input. And when people write scripts, um, they're often lazy, right? They're not doing a lot of hardening of scripts to protect against malicious activity. They just need to do X, Y, Z and give them the data they need. So I think it's entirely plausible that this could be a variation, if you will, on Shellshock. But it sounds so awfully similar to Shellshock that it feels like they might be splitting hairs just a little bit. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I think that for me, the the salient point is that it's entirely possible if Yahoo's version of re, of the the story is in fact true. That, why would they lie? Why would they? Lie? Well, that's I, I agree with you. They have nothing. They have very little to gain by lying, and in fact, I think they have a lot to lose by lying. And they, you know, I, I think actually, my view is the path of least resistance would have just been to say, "Yep, it was shell shock," and and move on. Uh, so, so it's it, it is actually very surprising to me that they actually said anything at all. Well, you know, um, he has an interesting point in here too. Um, 
so I'm going to quote again from his post. And when I say his, I mean the CISO of Yahoo. Uh, as you can imagine, this episode caused some confusion in our team. Since the servers in question had been successfully patched twice, immediately after the patch issue became public, once we ensured that the impacted servers were isolated from the network, we conducted a comprehensive trace of the attack code through our entire stack, which revealed the root cause, not shell shock. Now, here's the point. Let this be a lesson defenders and attackers are like. Just because the exploit code works doesn't mean it triggered the bug you expected. Yes, that was where I was going. Is that oh. it, it's 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 it is very likely if their version of reality is true that the the the, the attempt to exploit the shell shock vulnerability instead exploited this other stupid I mean arguably far worse, far more boneheaded vulnerability uh in in a, just a very coincidental way and and uh you know the, again i t- to me it seems like i would have just said yeah with shell shock and <laughs> and moved on but um you know well just you me. know accuracy, accuracy counts for something right and absolutely uh, i do think it's an interesting point we can't make assumptions just because certain exploit code works it's often worth looking at why it works yeah Yep. So I don't know. I I I am certainly no fan of Yahoo or Yahoo fanboy in any sense of the word, but this just reads as plausible to me. I don't I don't see the upside of any other reason to make up such an interesting convoluted story. Yeah. Uh, right. And I think it, when you when you start to think about it in context, it isn't quite as far fetched as it might otherwise seem. And I think that's for me what I hope people take away. It, what will be really interesting, and maybe Yahoo, if if they want to do any face saving, you know, will uh, will release. You know, here's like here's the logic flaw that we we saw. You know that, and and you know maybe that would be helpful to other other people in the future. Indeed. All right. So, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, just a crazy thing and it continues to unfold on many different social media outlets, even as we speak. Cause we love drama in the Eversec community. Totally. Totally. And by the way, I, there, I don't have anything against this, uh, you know, this guy, Mr. Hall. It's, uh, yeah, I just, I just really think he would have done better approaching this in a in a different way that's all so anyhow moving on our next story comes from the register and the title is jp morgan cyber heist and by the way i just want to point out cyber heist is in all capitals so you know it's very serious nine u.s financial firms snared by russian hackers says report so the story here is back a couple of months ago there was a whole bunch of hoopla about JP Morgan being breached. And there were some rumors about other com- other financial companies being breached. And then it kind of went dead until last week when JP Morgan filed a, uh, a, a report and they claimed that 83 million house, the data for 83 million households and businesses, there's really no clarity on how many businesses versus household, but I did look up. There are only 122 million households in the U.S. as of 2013. So, you know, maybe over half of, of all of all U.S. households are impacted by this. That's a little crazy. Uh, but anyhow, apparently the the kinds of information that was stolen were contact information, so names, uh, mailing addresses, email addresses, that sort of thing, but no account or financial information was allegedly stolen. Uh, so one of the interesting things I found in here, and by the way, this, the details are very sparse, but one interesting little tidbit was apparently the attackers stole a file that contained a list of all applications that JP Morgan uses in their environment. And I don't know if that was some white, you know, application whitelisting configuration file or, you know, some kind of a procurement inventory file or, or what, but, um, kind of interesting. And the story goes on to say that the same attackers breached allegedly 
nine other unnamed U.S. financial companies, and that uh, they are pointing the finger at some Russian hackers who have, quote, loose connections to Vladimir Putin, and the assertion is that this is some kind of retribution for the U.S. sanctions on Russia for the uh, uh, what's going on in the Ukraine. So, you know, if that, by the way, if that was in fact retaliation, it was kind of lame. <laughs> well, and it came from an unnamed senior intelligence official, so... So solid, that's totally solid. Clearly solid info. And, you know, we have such good luck with attribution. We are nearly 8% accurate in our attribution. Totally. We got a story coming up about that in a minute. It's true. So it's interesting because I, I'm not downplaying this, but a lot of the information they got is kind of, you know, hey, I looked you up in Yellow Pages. Yeah, you know? the, the, there was some, and, and by the way, I, I tried chasing this down and I and I failed miserably. I saw on Twitter, there was a, a, a loose assertion that the JP Morgan thing started with a phishing attack. And I was oh. not able to find any further corroboration about that story. However, it kind of makes sense, but it it differs very dramatically from the original story that they got in through some you know web application, and then yeah. uh, infected or uh, you know, compromised. I think they said ninety servers. Once again, we have no good data here to really dig into, so I guess we'll have to keep an eye on it. But yeah, it yep, it is interesting. They got a list of every application or program deployed. You know, there was a comment in here. Uh, let's see. The NYT said the hackers can cross-check with known or new vulnerabilities in each system in the search for a backdoor entry. And then they say, this one, this, this next comment really kind of hurt my head. Replacing those programs will take time and cost big bucks, apparently. Because that's your only reaction? So Is immediately replace all the programs? Yeah, so what are you going to do about Microsoft Office? Well, clearly you're going to have to go to OpenOffice. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> totally. Who, who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, It's a bad idea. It's a, I did it. <laughs> I tried it. It's a bad idea. But it's open source, oh, man. man. It's a bad idea. <laughs> just telling you. Uh, yeah, and also, that's just an ignorant ignorant statement for this reporter to make. Uh, maybe you might care, maybe if these were sort of public-facing entities and you had a really old, out-of-date version of something that couldn't be gleaned from reconnaissance anyway. I don't know. But yeah. Yep. Replacing WinZip on your secretary's desktop is not necessary in this case. Yeah, it's not... Obviously, there was no context about what you know why they would have said such a thing, and and I can't imagine that they came that the reporter came up with that thought on on their own, right? Well, clearly they interviewed Gregory Evans. He's just an uncredited source. <laughs> oh dang! You went there, didn't you? <laughs> wow! Yeah, yeah, that could be. If anybody doesn't get that reference, just uh, Google. Yeah, do some googling. Yeah. Because yep. that's as far as I'm going to go. Gregory Evans Charlatan is the Google term you want to look look up, by the way. And that's not his last name. That's that's just a that's just a it'll title. it'll just get you into the right neighborhood. Yes, on Google. So <sighs> so anyway, boy, we're like making friends and influencing people tonight, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know again, I I don't even think we gave our disclaimer, which is that these are the thoughts of only us and not. Our employer's past, version, or future, but now is probably a good time to throw that in there. That's a very good point. However, if you do like our thoughts and want to be our future employers, feel free to send us on Mark Bills and we'll talk. Excellent point. So, moving on to our next story. This comes from Naked Security, and the title is Bad USB. Do it, uh, sorry, now with do it yourself instructions. So, uh, back in. I think it was, uh, what, July or August, uh, during Black Hat, I think it was. 
a couple of researchers talked about the, uh, the their discovery that they could reprogram the microcontroller contained in most uh, most every USB device. And uh, once you do that, you you can't see it, you can't clean it. It's not a virus, right? You know, it it basically uh, changes the behavior of the device and you know, turns it into an HID type device and you can program it to do whatever you like. And uh and so uh at the time they the researchers put up some pretty flashy video demonstrations of this, you know, this thing changing DNS settings and uh adding virtual adapters and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, um at apparently at uh I guess it was at DerbyCon in fact, uh some researchers, some different researchers uh, essentially followed in their footsteps, created their own version, and released proof-of-concept code. So you, too, can create your very own bad USB device. Which which is fantastic. And, you know, all I could think of is it's like time to party like it's 1995 when we had to worry about auto-run. Clearly. And I'm guessing, by the way, this is a nod. The name is a nod to Bad BIOS. Oh, totally. So. Totally. Bad BIOS lives on in spirit. Well, you know, <laughs> I mentioned, I, I, I theorized this at the time, but we are incrementally making our way towards the entire feature set of Bad BIOS. If you believe it didn't already exist then. Well, true. That's true. Whether, But whether or not it did exist... We're, we're incrementally making our way there. I am a bad bias truther. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. But I'm going I'm to put up a four-hour-long YouTube documentary proving, without a shadow of a doubt, with blurry pictures and really bad evidence. <laughs> will, will you have interviews? I will, with people uh, blacked out and voice modulated. <laughs> About how bad BIOS is actual real, and it was a plot by the government. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And that they, you know, use explosives on Building 7. So, all that being said, I completely derailed your your, your topic. I I don't even know where to take it now. So, do we just turn off USB? Well, you know, I was thinking about that, and I... There's not a great, there's not a great story here. I mean, it's, you, you you can't disable auto run anymore. Okay. The only thing, the only thing I can I can come up with, and I don't think there are easy ways to do this. So I, I think that this is now, you know, we're going to have to see some innovation catch up to this problem here. Um, basically, you're, you're going to have to enforce the kind of device, right? So if if uh, you plug in a USB stick, you know, flash drive, and it presents itself to the operating system as a human interface device, you know, you, you're going to have to, there's going to have to be some kind of prompt that pops up and says, is this thing, you know, before it, before it allows you, you know, that device to interact with your operating system, it's going to say, is this, you know, is this thing really a keyboard or is it really a mouse or, is, you know, that, that sort of thing. And grandma's going to click yes. Uh, well, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> there aren't any other good options. Uh, I would be curious. There are a number of enterprise-wide software that control USB rewrites and USB ports and the type of devices that can be plugged into USB. I'd be really curious if this is low enough layer that it gets around those uh, pieces of control software. I'm not going to throw any vendors out there, but there are ones out there that can say things like only a Kingston 16 gig model XYZ can actually be accessed. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can read from it, but you can't write to it and stuff like that. Um, you know, sometimes it's wrapped in the DLP. Sometimes it's just wrapped in device control software. But I'd be curious how well those sorts of software dealt with something like this. And I don't know. It may be too low level because that, USB stick being plugged in, executing the microcode, is pretty low level to the system. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the. I think that is the very problem that we're going to have. Is you know, th- hypothetically, this is essentially emulating a keyboard now, 
you know that your your USB device you've you've hijacked the microcontroller and you've turned it you've made it start thinking that it is a keyboard and you are programming it with you know the ability to to run some essentially macros so you could think about it right you could theoretically hypothetically plug this in before boot and if you knew you know if it knew how to interact with bios you know there it's very low level there 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 isn't i don't think there's a good opportunity as things are currently designed to inter, to intercept that now i could be wrong and I'm happy to be wrong if I am, but I, again, I think this is going to start requiring some innovation, maybe at you know at the at the Windows and operating system level, to uh, you know, to, to control. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, to be continued. But yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure certain vendor product management folks are going. Hmm, what can we do to put out a press release that we stop this? <laughs> Yeah, I saw uh, some some of the people I follow on Twitter were were uh, you know maniacally laughing. You know, just ordered another ten USBs. You know, I fixed them and now I'm sending them back. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, yeah. It's a <sighs> it's a brave new world we live in. <laughs> All right, so our, our last story tonight comes from CSO Online, and the title here is Threat Intelligence Firm Mistakes Research for Nation State Attack. I This this story resonated with me when you send it to me. Um, I, I get really angry, like an angry drunk, when... Uh, when I see a lot of these attribution stories, because I really feel like people don't actually know who the hell they're actually, they're tracking, right? They're making an educated guess. And then the educated guess gets codified in a report that says, yes, it was absolutely Russia. or It was absolutely China. And, you know, in this case, it was absolutely a nation state that was scanning for ICS devices, except it wasn't. It was actually a digital bond researcher working out of freaking Chattanooga, <laughs> trying to make up, gather data for a presentation at DerbyCon. Ah, uh, oops. So, yeah, just, just, yeah. The, the company's name, by the way, is ThreatStream, and they they came up with this uh, this report. They they essentially run a network of honeypots that emulate ICS devices, industrial control systems, and apparently they you know they just intake scans and things like that, and and so they came they they published this report. Bloomberg picked up the report, ran their own piece on it, and after some further investigation, yeah, it turns out that. Uh, you know, at least one of the actors was, in fact, a security researcher and not a nation state trying to hack the water plants of the world. But, but Jerry, they filtered out all known research servers that we knew of for this story. Uh, what can you do? I mean, if they said Cle- it, clearly, clearly I- this is all wrong. I mean, how clearly the researcher didn't fill out the appropriate change control paperwork. Oh, that's a good point. He probably only filled it out twice instead of in triplicate. <laughs> Didn't sign the uh, right box. But this is such a typical problem that we're running into now with thread intel feeds. Yeah, and that's that's why I wanted to bring this up. Is I I think one of the problems I see with threat intelligence and the concept of attribution is there is for the most part, I mean, obviously there are outliers and this is not always the rule, right? There is a, a general, what I interpret to be uh, in assumption or, or understanding that certain kinds of actors uh, are required. You require certain kinds of actors to execute certain kinds of attacks. And, you know, the reality is that a lot of this stuff is becoming so commoditized the attack techniques and the tools and whatnot are becoming so commoditized that anybody can do it. Uh, you know, not necessarily anybody, right? But but many people. It doesn't doesn't take the Syrian Electronic Army to pull off the shenanigans they do. It doesn't take you know the 
comment crew to pull off the kinds of things they do. You know, I'm not not disagreeing that those groups exist. I am saying that many other less sophisticated people could do the same thing to the same ends and probably even make it look like it was, you know, somebody else. So, well, clearly what they should be doing is publishing the IP addresses of their honeypots so researchers would not scan them. That's Oh, that's probably yes. <laughs> This drives me drives me crazy. Well, th- this reminds me so much of the early days of the internet, when drops on firewall logs were considered attacks and were counted as such. Oh yes, the right? good old days. We blocked two hundred thousand uh, pr- attack probes this week alone. And then it was spams, right? <laughs> and I remember the early days of like the military coming out with these outrageous attacks. Uh, you know. Uh, statistics. They're counting port scans as attacks, right? Right. And I kind of think that's where we're at in terms of some of these threat intelligence feeds. They can't easily discriminate between actual, legitimate, malicious activity and researchers and testers. And I don't think it's on the research team or the testers or whatever to make it painfully obvious that they're a research team. Uh, you know, our good buddy Rob Graham does a lot of stuff with his mass scan, and he's extremely public about it and is very vocal and does a lot of stuff to tag his scans with information about what they are and goes out of his way to make very sure people know what it is that's scanning them. And he still gets tons of people getting upset that they think that he's sending malicious activity at them. So at the end of the day, it's on the threat intelligence vendors to vet their streams of information as accurate and useful. And this is one of those that really makes me think that we are in the embassy of the threat intelligence kind of business right now. And there's going to be a lot of this sort of snake oil out there with the best of intentions by these vendors, but they're just not very mature yet. And they need to be. Yeah. I think you, I think you hit on the nail on the head there. By the way, I'm, uh, I don't know what to say. I think you just called Rob Graham a nation state. Oh, I did. Uh, they, he actually seceded his his little house, uh, just like that episode of I think The Simpsons, or might have been Family Guy. But yeah, yeah, he is his own nation state. Wow, Rob Grahamia. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I think the the takeaway there for me is, you know, be be skeptical. Again, I think. You know, this kind of comes back to the broader problem of attribution and paying attention to more more about what people are doing and less about who they are. Because again, you know, it's on the internet. You can be just about anybody you want to be, and uh, again, I think capabilities are becoming so abstracted that. Using that as a as some kind of a reliable indicator or you know a, a factor in your response is probably only going to at least in the long term uh, lead to to sadness and and heartache. <laughs> maybe even maybe even a heart bleed. And clearly, I won't be getting any job offers from threat intelligence firms. Or maybe we could future. make it better. We could try. We could certainly try. That's yeah, that's true. Money helps. Beginning, beginning, bidding begins at four hundred thousand dollars a year each. Uh, sounds like a plan. And Bring it uh, on. We'll be doing bids in ten thousand dollar increments. Bring it on. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the uh, wait. Before oh, we go, oh, there's an oh, important announcement. Oh, go ahead. We do have a new tool to introduce. It is. Lacey, the breach detection dog. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm sorry t- for everyone. You can just hit stop now on, on your player. But yeah, I did get a puppy. Uh, I've been, you know, for the past several decades, I've been a cat person. And I was thrust into dog ownership very abruptly and uh and you know i i went into it willingly not not saying that i didn't but uh yeah I, dogs by the way are like uh 
mouths on big mouths with big pointy teeth on legs that run around and they eat everything. And so we're trying to figure out how can we turn this into a security tool? And the best I can think of is, you know, I would, I came up with the idea of the anti APT wire cutters. And so I'm thinking that I can, you know, turn this, this whole thing into, you know, an anti APT dog, right? So, the idea is you, you know, you point it at the cable where the APTs are emanating from and the dog chews through it. No more APT. Right. So an on-demand air gap. Bingo. Uh, you know, and I think uh, there's a company that also is exploring this, APT Defender, that uh, you can uh, hit up at aptdefender.com that may be able to cross market with us on this concept. That's a great idea. And by the way, they have uh, certifications, I think, right? They do. They do. And uh, I've actually been thinking about um, taking one of those certifications. They're, they look really good. And I definitely advise everybody to take a look at that website and, and uh, you know, explore Explore some certification and, you know, developing your career potential. It's true. So, so I think we could develop Lacey though into being able to bark whenever a major breach is, is happening. I like it. Which you know. would basically be all, all the time, right? Well, she lives with you, not me. <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> so with that, with that, I think we're going to call it a night. Because uh, I, I'm getting frantically test- texted by my wife. Apparently, the dog is eating the furniture or something. <laughs> I'm sorry to completely derail the end of the show, but no, uh, nope. Any hate mail uh, should go to Andy Callet. It's K A L A. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if you uh, if you like the show, send us. It. Uh, you know, actually, if you don't like the show, have any feedback, don't like the show, ideas, whatever, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. If you have a, uh, uh, if you have a desire to follow us on Twitter, uh, Mr. Kellett is at Lurg. I'm at Malicious Link. The show's at Defensive Sec. You can find back episodes, links to the show notes and everything else on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, I will uh, plead one more time for feedback on iTunes. It is, uh, it's like our internet points. We, we love it. Thank you very much to those who have uh, given us feedback. And uh, hopefully, if you haven't, you will consider it. And with that, we'll talk again next week. Have a great one. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.